All right, we're in the Gospel of Luke chapter 8 tonight. Oh, love that will not let me go. You know, we're coming to a passage tonight which I think really pairs well with the passages that we've been going through in February, at least two of them. Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 uh, not only have some agricultural illustrations, some agricultural parables, but they also have a lot to say with the union between what it means to have trusted in God in, in, through Christ and to continue trusting uh, through Christ and to grow this balance of what it means to have believed and to be believing, uh, what we sometimes refer to as the perseverance of the saints or once saved, always saved or eternal security or a number of other names as well. This reality that to be, but to belong to the Lord uh, is to be involved in, the, is to have the redeeming work of Jesus Christ taking place on the inside of us as well. So we'll come to a passage this evening that kind of gives some interesting contextual things at the beginning, but also uh, has much to say to us in the parable of the sower. One of the, one of the parables that's included in um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them uh, include that parable. So let me give you some geography or some, uh, some visuals here. Some of y'all are gonna be going to the Holy Land. I've heard a few of you, you know, saying that in the next you know, few months, getting a chance to do that. So for the rest of us, here's a few PowerPoint slides tonight. So just the same, right? When we come to the passage this evening, you're gonna see just a quick contextual aside to say that Jesus was going between villages. And so these are sort of a snapshot of a few of the areas now uh, where, um, where we believe he, he went. These areas around Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, here's a few quick snapshots if you want. Uh, Tabga, a place that uh, from the Northwest, you're looking here uh, down the hillside next to the Sea of Galilee. You've got uh, Chorazin. This one is mentioned explicitly in the Gospels. You've got um, a place called Arbel and a synagogue that's been excavated there. Jesus may have gone there as well, also being in this region. You've got Cana, which you might remember. Uh, not looking quite as nice as it once did. None of these are. They're just ruins, but it sort of gives you an idea of the footpaths of where this uh, was. Another place called Jadapada which is a cool name to say. This is the Tehran Valley looking down. Uh, you see Mount Tabor in the distance. You got another valley uh, from the north. I don't know about you, but in my mind when I'm picturing Jesus walking around, he's always walking around in desert terrain, uh, but that just wasn't the case. A lot of green in Israel, particularly in Galilee. And then a, a hillside that I think would have been a cool place to live in this uh, village. This is a place called Gamla. And you've got a hillside you can see here, uh, the remains of a tower and a synagogue and some other areas that are here uh, in a wall. And then you've got, uh, you've got an excavation uh, of um, Magdala, which will come into a little bit of connection tonight. But you can see they went ahead and put on the sign, the most famous thing that Magdala is known for, a lady named Mary Magdalene, her hometown more than likely. This is a shot of that place, that excavation from the top. If you were to go into a, um, uh, a pilgrimage center, a Roman Catholic pilgrimage center, which is uh, not too far away and, and see uh, a chapel that is nearby as well, you'd see this, this mural of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. So what in Baptists that came up with murals? We've had those for a long time. Uh, Dennis Swanberg, one of my favorite Christian comedian, talks about serving in a church where a lady had painted a mural in their baptistry. 
of uh, the Brazos River, which was a river in Texas, and Jesus was standing in the Brazos River uh, baptizing people. And he said the part that always got him, uh, got him tickled was that there were sheep and armadillos in the background. And so uh, you never know what you're going to get with a mural, but, uh, but here's one, Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Here is um, a place that's classically known as the Cove of the Sower. And so this uh, near some, some fields that you can see there and also on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and kind of built to be a sort of um, watery amphitheater that from a boat, if you were sitting up on the hillside, you can see that boat in the distance, it would be a kind of way to be able to hear in an age with no microphones uh, as best as you could. So there's many who believe that the parable of the sower was told in this general area. And then here's a picture of about 100 years ago. I think this was in the late 20s. This was taken of a sower who was uh, sowing near the Mount of Olives. And so um, I had a seminary professor one time who said, the people who lived 100 years ago had more in common with the people of Jesus' day than they had with us. There's been a tremendous amount of progress made in the last 100 years, some of it good, some of it not so good. I had a grandmother who was born, a great-grandmother who was born in 1903, and uh, the, the... changes in her lifetime were just unbelievable uh, by the time she passed away in the late 90s. And so uh, we come into several things tonight in the passage. We'll see uh, the parable of the sower in just a moment, but we've also got some things mentioned just quickly at the beginning, which actually provide a helpful context for us as well. So uh, I'm going to say a word of prayer and let's dive into the scripture uh, tonight afterwards. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the words of Jesus. And thank you for a love that will not let us go, uh, in which we can uh, rest our weary souls and in whom uh, we can rest our weary souls. And so, Lord, would you uh, magnify the gospel in our eyes and in our minds and hearts tonight? Would you speak as only you can through the power of the Holy Spirit? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The first few verses at the start of chapter 8 that we come to this evening, I'll just read and then mention some context notes that are on your page here. Um, and so let's, let's dive into that. Luke 8, beginning with verse 1, Luke writes, Soon afterward he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits, and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, uh, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, Luke gives an important note. I've got this here, the first, I guess, blank on your page. Luke gives an important note at the beginning of chapter 8 that allows us to realize that many women also followed Jesus in similar fashion to the disciples. Now, they may not have been always present, but there were uh, multiple times where not only were there the 12 surrounding him, when we get our picture in our heads with some of the conversations that happen, sometimes we, in our minds, we see Jesus, we see the disciples as of the 12, but the Bible tells us not only were there more disciples besides even the 12, there were just, the 12 was a you know, unique chosen group of those, uh, those 12 men, but also in addition to additional men that could have been there, there also at times were a number of women who also were there. Uh, and they were, in, interestingly enough, in this passage described as uh, being the providers for the men um, who were there. Now, that may have been out of wealth that they already had because of connections. You see one here who's got a connection to being uh, the wife of, uh, of Herod's household manager. 
And so you've, you've got connections perhaps in that way and others perhaps that, uh, you know, out of, out of whatever means they had were helping to provide for the disciples and Jesus. And so they play an important role. And so it's interesting, Luke brings that out. Luke is the one more than any other gospel writer who really notes what's taking place with the women who are around Jesus. And so we, we get as many clues, perhaps more, from him than we do from any other gospel writer. And he gives an aside at the beginning to make sure that we know this uh, fact as well. There were many women who followed Jesus in similar fashion. It says that Jesus is going throughout the cities and the villages. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, often we equate that phrase, kingdom of God, with the phrase kingdom of heaven because it at times is used interchangeably in the gospels, but the kingdom of God didn't just mean the kingdom of heaven in that Jesus is not only giving the hope of heaven to come, but that phrase kingdom of God to declare the kingdom is to declare the ruler of the king himself. And so Jesus is describing the hope of his own rule over creation and, uh, and over eternity and over their life and death and, and everything in between. Jesus is giving the hope in the fact that he himself uh, has come to reign and come to be the Messiah that's been promised. Now, at times he would say that in ways to uh, conceal certain things in order so that they didn't run with false conceptions that they had. But he is speaking in such a way to declare the hope of what it means that Jesus is the king uh, for the kingdom in which we belong to when we are in him. And so whatever uh, heartaches they had as being subjects of the Roman Empire or even being citizens of, of Judea, there was a greater hope in the kingdom that they belonged to. You remember elsewhere where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And so there's a declaration of a kingdom that God's people belong to through Christ, uh, which Luke describes the message in that way. Uh, and then we get this aside of who was with him. Now we get several men uh, mention of who is there and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene is the first one that's listed. We know from archaeological evidence, or at least the best we can gather, about 25% of the women in Judea at that time were named some form of Mary or Miriam, the Old Testament name, 25%. Now, when I was growing up in every classroom, there was a Jennifer and there was a Kelly and, you know, there were some names that were just around. For some of y'all, there were other names. You know, there was, there was this and there was that, you know, and you thought, well, every, every class I was in, I had to have my, you know, first, my last name initial put because there were several of us. But I, imagine what it'd be like to have one out of every four ladies have the same name. Imagine how confusing that could be. And so a number of the ladies that we know their name in the New Testament are named Mary. And sometimes it gets a little <laughs> tricky. But Mary Magdalene is given this distinction here. And the second phrase that you've got there on your sheet tonight, Mary Magdalene was probably from a place called Magdala, and that's probably where her name came from. We are not told explicitly, but most are in agreement that that's where that name comes from, uh, that Mary Magdalene was from a place called Magdala. And interestingly enough, she has had more stories invented about her in history than any woman in the New Testament. There have been all kinds of, when I was, let me say it this way. When I was young, I, my, we grew up in a, in a denomination where you weren't allowed to go to the movies. I didn't know movie theaters existed. I, I didn't, you know, I was, I was in third or fourth grade before I ever knew a movie theater even existed. Kids at the lunch table would talk about movies and I had no idea what they were talking about. 
And a movie I didn't see until I was in high school was a movie called Star Wars. Came out around the time I was being born. There were three of them that were made, I think, between the late 70s and the early 80s. We had three Star Wars films. Well, when I was in high school, people started getting excited because all of a sudden they were going to get more Star Wars films. And more Star Wars films started coming out. And you know what happens when you make more of something? Nobody likes it. So those three films came out and nobody was real excited about them. And then all of a sudden, here a few years ago, what were they going to do? They were going to start making more Star Wars films, aren't they? And now they're churning out Star Wars films every year. All kinds of, you can spend your whole life watching Star Wars films. The, the difference is now those films don't belong to the original creator anymore. Ju George Lucas sold those off and, you know, Mickey Mouse is designing Star Wars now. You know, they're taking care of that. But we just, we sometimes as a people, we want, give us more stories, give us more of that. And there were people over the centuries who started saying, you know, I bet people will read a story if it's about Mary Magdalene. Or I bet if I was to give something about Mary Magdalene or to claim something, we would see this. Mary Magdalene's not somebody who's described in great detail in the New Testament. She does, particularly in John's gospel, uh, we get one narrative specifically with her and Jesus at the resurrection, but there's a lot we don't know. <laughs> but there were people in the Middle Ages who began to, you know, come up with different stories. One that said, well, you know, she uh, escaped and came to France. And a thousand years after the time of Jesus, there were those who said, we found a skeleton here in southern France. It's Mary Magdalene. It must be her. And here's how she, you know, if you went to different places, you would see murals about different extra biblical stories that were invented about her. Uh, a movie that, uh, and a book that came out some years ago that gained a lot of popularity quickly, uh, The Da Vinci Code, which came up with a narrative that was left over from the Renaissance era that just said, yes, you know, we think Mary Magdalene was really Jesus's wife and, and on and on. And it was based a lot on these hundreds and hundreds of years ago or years later stories that people came up with uh, with no validity. And so we, we like to invent a lot of things, uh, but we conclusively are only told a very few things about Mary Magdalene. The only thing we conclusively know about her, aside from the narratives that we see, uh, is that she had seven demons who were cast out of her. And so the Lord Jesus rescued her uh, from that situation. We're not told anything more specifically uh, about that. Um, there was someone in the Middle Ages who began to attach her specifically with the sinful woman that's in Luke 7. And so you might have heard at different points, well, Mary Magdalene was a prostitute or she was, but actually Scripture doesn't teach that. Uh, that, that that's been something that's been added on or, or, you know, assumed in different roles. What we are told clearly uh, is that she is someone who, from whom seven demons uh, were cast out. So interestingly enough, you've got a number of ladies here. Most of them we haven't heard very much about before. Uh, you've got Joanna, who's mentioned here, and then again in Luke 24. And otherwise, we don't know anything about her. Even all that we know is just that she's mentioned as being a part of the group or in the room. And then you've got a lady named uh, Susanna. The King James, oh, Susanna. That's a joke. That's a bad joke. <laughs> Susanna is only mentioned here. This is the only verse in the Bible uh, that, that she made it into. But you'd say, well, hey, if I could make it into one verse, that'd be doing all right. Well, she, she did. She made it into one verse. Uh, Susanna mentioned here, we know nothing else about her other than she's part of the group that helped provide for Jesus. And so it's a reminder to us that fact is always more complex than just a story that someone would come up with. There's so much we don't know about some of the workings uh, of everything, but we're reminded that there's a number of people who are following Jesus and, uh, and walking with him, uh, hearing what is said, seeing what is done. So then we come to the parable of the sower. Let's dive into that. 
Luke chapter 8, verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. Some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when the disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they're choked by their cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. You've probably heard this Sunday school phrase some point in your time in church, if you've been in church a while, particularly Baptist churches. Point number one, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Anybody ever heard that before? That was the phrase I must have heard a hundred times as a kid about the meaning of a parable. If uh, just in case you don't know it, I still haven't come up with a better way to state it. A parable is just an illustrated story or a story to illustrate a, a point, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Uh, Jesus more than likely gave parables about the things that he did because they were either within eyesight or they were within the experience of the people who were there. I wonder if he came to us what he would tell parables about. There was a man who walked into a smartphone store, or I don't know how it might, you know, turn out. There's, there's, there's illustrations that he makes, uh, and very, it's very possible, it's particularly in the f- photo I showed you before, if he was standing near that area... They would have been able to look around and see examples of everything that he mentions even here. A sower went out to sow seed, uh, that he is casting seed and he is doing that. At this time period, they actually cast seed before they plowed. And so for some of us here, you might be thinking of it in a different order, but the seed would be thrown. It would go everywhere. If you've ever sown grass, that's sort of the closest thing I can think of. When we've planted a garden, you're trying to do that in rows, but if you're just trying to get grass to grow, you're just tossing that seed and praying, right? Or you're using the the spreader and just hoping something good will happen. If you don't have dogs in the backyard who like to dig, you know, you you might have a chance of growing grass. So uh, my my backyard has little hope because of just kind of some of the things we've got. When you've got a trampoline and a swing and everything else, you're just not going to have grass. But you go out there and you throw the seed anyway, right? There's a casting of it everywhere. It's somewhat indiscriminate to see where it will grow. If you've ever been to the top of a mountain on a hike, one of the things that I think is so funny, any, any mountain, at least in North Carolina, Tennessee, you know, in, in the greater Appalachian regions, you go up there and it can be cold, it can be windy, it can be rocky, and what you're inevitably going to see is some tree that you don't know how it's there growing out of the side of a rock on the, on the side of a cliff. I mean, it's just unbelievable. So when we look at the parable of the sower, I think it would be wrong for us to say that only certain type of people can be saved. 
There is a real relevance to the type of soil where the seed would fall, but we see this illustration in in agriculture and in life all around us that sometimes you're somewhere that you you don't know why you can't grow what you're trying to grow. The soil seems good. You got miracle grow. You got this. You got that. Plenty of water. It's just not happening. And other times that no matter what you do, uh, you know, in the in the the most roundup of of any place you've got, there's weeds that keep on coming up. There's life you know, otherwise. And so Jesus has given a parable that we don't need to take so far as to say, well, Jesus is saying only certain types of people can be saved. God does incredible turnarounds in a moment, sometimes in stony, you know, rocky, dusty hearts. And other times where there's no excuse, no reason, we sometimes would know situations and we say, how in the world with all that that person was given in their knowledge of the truth, with people who love them, whatever it was, it just didn't seem to take root and we don't know why. And so we kind of balance that truth with what Jesus gives in this passage. And so in this earthly story with a heavenly meaning, uh, one of the things I'd say next is that one of the functions of Jesus' parables was to separate those who were willing to seek Jesus away from those who were not ultimately interested to find out more or not ultimately interested in him. One of the functions of Jesus' parables was to separate. And Jesus actually says that because this is the parable in the New Testament that has the longest explanation of exactly what it means. We don't have to spend a lot of time guessing what this parable is about because Jesus explains it. And we can take his words and we don't have to divide them any more fully. He explains what's going on. But before he does that, he quotes Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, he refers back to even in, in many ways the reference that would probably come to people's minds are the passages that Pastor Brandon's leading us through on Sunday morning with Pharaoh who continually has his heart hardened and at the same time is hardening his own heart. That there's a way in which those who aren't willing to come on Jesus' terms, come on God's terms, their hearts are hard enough. There's a way in which if they're not willing to lean in uh, in the way that God's called them, that it's not going to be so easily accessible. You ever had somebody say to you, if God was real, why didn't he just, you know, sky ride it in the sky, tell us exactly what the three or four things to do uh, are and just leave it at that? Why, why does he make it complicated enough that we've got to, you know, sometimes those who ask and it will be given to them, those who seek and, and knock, that the door will be opened. This idea that God desires for us uh, to lean in on his terms to what he has for us. And so, you know, this parable about uh, a dusty path and about rocky soil and about thorns that grow up, it's sort of in this way, in the context where Jesus begins by quoting uh, the fact that he's fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, that there'll be those who hear, but they don't really understand, and, that, and this is going to indicate the state of their hearts. It sort of reminded me, can, can I give you an early 2000s parable here? There's a movie that came out when I was in college called Remember the Titans. It was a football story about an, the integration of a school, I believe it was in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, in Virginia, if I'm not mistaken, where all of a sudden what had once been an all-white school, what had once been an all-black school, those were combined, and now there was one football team that was going to have to come together. Well, this didn't you know, happen very easily. There was a lot of things that had to be worked out. And so the coach, as he took them to camp that summer, and as they began to, you know, uh, be around each other, he, he forced all, all, all the students on his team to combine with someone of another skin color in their room, and they were going to have to learn several things about that teammate of theirs and report to the whole group some facts about their life. This was to try to grow their personal relationship. So there's a scene early on in this movie where 
Bertier and Julius come together and uh, Bertier comes up and says, man, look, just give me the answers to questions. Tell me three things about, him, so, about you so I can write them down. And Julius says, why, why are you asking questions? You don't care anything about me. You don't want to know anything about me. Well, look, man, I'm just trying to get the assignment done. Just let me write down this stuff and let's get out of here. We don't need to do it. Bertier was trying to bypass the goal of the assignment in order to just fill in the right answers to the questions. I think in some small way, there's a similarity here to what Jesus is saying. For those who are simply trying to very quickly punch a card, let me know the three bullet points that I want to know. That's not what God desires from us. He desires a relationship from us. And that's going to only grow in meaningful ways uh, and not quick and shallow ways. And so Jesus' parable is not meant to be hidden from those who would seek the truth. But it is meant to be not so simplistic that those who are in their heart opposed to the Lord will somehow understand something clinically that they've not understood spiritually. And so Jesus' parable of the sower then, number three, drives home the point that how you grow, we often refer to that as sanctification, is aligned with how you start. And we use the word for that often, uh, the word we use is conversion. Conversion is, I guess, the fancy word of saying getting saved. That's often the phrase we use. When we've come to, to Christ, when we've placed faith in Him in a saving way. That our hope for people that we live around, that are in our family, that otherwise we you know, make contact with, is not ultimately that they'll go from one moral behavior to another moral behavior, that they'll have dressed one way before and now dress another way this time, that they perhaps had certain political views on one side and now will have different views over here on this other side. All of this is just totally secondary or even further down the line. The reality for us, according to the Scripture, is that we are dead and apart from Christ we can't be made alive. And so we don't need some sort of outward change. God's got to reach in on the inside of us and in the power of only Christ, he's got to rescue and raise the dead that we are to life. That's our only hope. And so as Baptists, we're conversion people. We're not simply trying to get people's behavior to be right or to say, well, now, you know, I've set myself up with a certain list of stuff that I have to do. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that each one of us needs to meet Jesus in a such a way that we have a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus. That's going to look different for each one of us. For some of you, you could get up here and tell your testimony and it'd knock our socks off for just the way that God brought you through it. Some of you'd get embarrassed and you'd come up here and say, well, my testimony is not that powerful. I wasn't that, you know, bad of a kid and I got saved at a young age and this and that. And we'd almost think that somehow our you know, our story wouldn't be as good. And the reality is any one of us that Jesus Christ has saved through faith have had a tremendous rescue in our life. And so conversion shapes then what else happens because it's impossible to get raised from death to life and have no change. It's impossible to go from blind to seeing and have no change. And so the message that Jesus gives in this parable is that what happens afterward is not what saves someone, but it points backward to what has happened in the beginning, whether it's been true from the start. If we're not careful, I know as a, as a pastor sometimes I've struggled with this through the years. If we're not careful, we will deal 10 seconds with conversion and then we will spend the rest of our ministry and time trying to figure out why goats don't act like sheep. Tony Evans, I think, was the one who said that originally. 
That if we're not careful, we will do all that we can to try and try to change the moral behavior of someone, try to change the attendance numbers, whatever it is, we can spend a lot of time focusing on that area. If we're not careful, we will move too quickly past the understanding that people need to believe the truth of the gospel, not just intellectually, but personally in a way that's saving. And that's going to look different for different people. You know, when I look backwards, I remember as a small child, I don't remember what the date was. Uh, you know, I don't remember a, a number of things about the specifics, but I, I have a vivid image in my mind of what it was like to open that children's Bible, recognize the gospel because it had been taught to me so many times up to that point, and alone in my room there with a picture of Jesus on the left-facing page, praying to God and asking for salvation. There was a whole lot I still needed to learn. There was a whole lot I still needed to grow, and I had a whole lot of forgiveness yet to come. I still do. But in that moment, when I look backward, I still find assurance tracing back all the way there because I see that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. I had a lot left to learn, a lot of growing left to do, a lot of understanding and even commitment left to have with the Lord Jesus. But when we look backwards, one of the things that's most important is to see a time, not only when we straightened up our behavior, because we can't truly straighten up our behavior, but have we trusted in Christ in a saving way? Our time's getting short and I'm taking too long, so I'm gonna try to streamline this a little bit better. Number four, it's on the back. You got a back tonight, so y'all wait till afterwards to groan, but we're gonna get through this in the last. The central question of our life is what we do with the message of the gospel. The central question of our life is what we do with the message of the gospel. Jesus gives several illustrations, and just to walk through these verses quickly, uh, we'll do this here tonight. Verse 12, the ones along the path are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. The first bullet point there under point number four, it's possible to hear, but that that hearing makes no real impact. It's possible to hear, to have that truth given. Sometimes we think if only people could know, if only people could hear, and in many ways that is true, we want all to hear and all to know, but that's not enough. People have a choice of what they're going to do. Do you remember that question that Pilate asked as he perhaps leaned over that balcony looking down at the crowd? What will you do with this Jesus who is called Christ? And that's the central question of our life too, isn't it? What are we going to do with Jesus? It's possible to hear but to have that hearing make no real impact. The average person in your life who needs the gospel more than likely is gonna to have to hear that gospel in some way, shape, or form numerous times before they're able to take hold of it. That's not always the case, but in your life, if you get frustrated because you said, well, I told them and they didn't believe, you think back on your own life and you think probably how many times and how many people and how many ways you had to be shown the truth before it finally took root in your heart. Don't lose hope, don't lose heart with folks who have heard and don't yet believe. Number two, or the, the second bullet point there, it's possible to be initially joyful about the gospel, but when the feelings fade, the foundation wasn't Jesus. Verse 13, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. One of the things I've struggled with through the years is whether or not to tell people when they come to faith in Christ, just be ready because Satan's going to try to come after you here real soon. That sometimes things are going to get hard and there's going to be a time of testing, you know, that goes along with 
put in faith in Christ. Pastor Brandon mentioned professional wrestling on Sunday, so I can mention it here too tonight. We'll get a full sweep of the schedule. I, I remember some years ago seeing an interview. I don't watch a lot of Christian television, but I was flipping through the channels, TBN or TCT, one of those channels uh, that was there. Uh, Shawn Michaels, I believe it was, the wrestler was being interviewed. He had recently come to faith in Christ, which is wonderful. But he was a young believer, didn't know how to process a number of things yet. One of the things he said to the man who was interviewing him is, is he said, you know, when I came to faith in Christ, I just had this incredible feeling inside uh, from being rescued by Jesus. And I prayed this prayer, Lord, please don't ever let me stop feeling like this. Now, I guess the encouraging thing, if you're ever called on Christian television, no matter what, what you say, they'll clap and give you a big hand for it. But when he said that, even as a young adult, I thought he's going to be disappointed real soon. If our hope when we follow Christ is to never stop feeling like someone, something, somehow, feelings aren't what our faith is built on. And feelings fade. And there's going to be times where you absolutely feel that you're at rock bottom. And those who are in Christ, ultimately, the song of their hearts is going to come back to, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. Or whatever your, you know, that same truth, however it's going to come out. That at rock bottom, you'd rather have Jesus. You're still going to call out to Jesus. You're still going to lean on him. That the gospel, the hope in Christ is not what you abandon. When the feelings fade, I remember singing a song in college, when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come. And I'm coming back to the heart of worship. You've probably sang that song before. Sometimes the music fades, the feelings fade, everything seems to fade. But I want the cry of my heart to be like the cry of the disciples when they said, Lord, where else can we go? You're the one who has the words of life. You know, to whom else will we run when we can't do it? Number three, when we leave Jesus behind for other things, we never really knew him. When we leave Jesus behind for other things, we never really knew him. Verse 14, and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. This verse does not mean that each of us are called to live in poverty. It does not mean that we cannot enjoy creation, one of the earliest creeds and statements of the church fathers that we've been called uh, to, to, uh, to worship and glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, that we are called to be people who aren't have to, you know, you're not called to have a solemn, unhappy life in Christ. There's nowhere has He brought you into that commandment. But at the same time, there are ways in which if we're not careful that every other pursuit, every other desire begins to choke out God's plan for our life until sooner or later we look around and we realize we've completely walked away, that it, we, we weren't following in any such way that we were, we were held on. That points backward to the fact that nothing true uh, took place to begin with. In 1991, the Chicago Symphony was having a big night, an orchestra that had gathered there, several big names that were coming together. And it was such a big fancy night there in the, the big auditorium that they had that a clockmaker that was there in Chicago handed out free clocks to everybody who had gone in. And so all these people took these free clocks and went inside and they began to listen to the orchestra play and it was incredible. For a few minutes, everything was perfect. Then all of a sudden they began to hear beep, 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 beep. 
all around that room, every clock that had been given out had been set to go off at 9.15 p.m., about 15 minutes into the symphony that night. And it became so distracting that they had to stop the concert and take a break and decide whether they were going to go back out and finish the music or not. One person writing about this incident said, trivial things have a terrible power to disrupt what is important. Trivial things have a terrible power to disrupt what is important. When we leave Jesus behind for other things, when they block out uh, him from us, we, we never really knew him. We want to paint it and say, well, these are the other things that come to us. I've got this vision in my head of watching a cartoon, a super book cartoon, 1980s, uh, you know, illustrated Bible stories when I was a kid. And I remember these thorns growing up and, you know, over this poor little seed and starting to choke it out. But in the reality of our life daily lived out, we choose the thorns, don't we? We go after them and say, well, it's not going to be a big deal to put this right beside me. It's not going to, you know, I think they can be in close proximity. It's not going to make any difference. I'm strong enough to overcome this or that. I can make provision for this thing or that thing. And all of a sudden it begins to grow and squeeze and more and more until before we knew it, we're saying, did did we ever know the Lord at all? We leave Jesus behind for other things. Uh, There's a warning that we perhaps never really knew him. And then number four, and lastly, Jesus gives a description in verse 15, and I summarize it this way, our salvation is shown true in an honest, good, and patient walk with Jesus that bears fruit. Verse 15, Jesus closes the meaning of the parable by saying, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. 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 And I may not be the man that I hope to be, but by God's grace, I'm not the man that I was. That in our life, we're able to look and say, well, my fruit might not be the same as so-and-so over there. There's ways that I'm still growing and still learning and at times still failing. But God's moving. And there's fruit. And when I don't know what to do, I'll seek to be honest, to emulate, emulate the goodness of God and to patiently walk with Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the hope of the gospel, that it is you not only who has begun but is sustaining the work that is going on on the inside of us. And so, Lord, will you draw us close to you? Will the refrain of our heart be continually more and more that we'd rather have Jesus than anything else that the world offers? We thank you for the blessings of life, Lord, but may we beware the thorns. May we beware the the dusty hard, rocky road. And Father, will you lead us where you'd have us to go? We praise you and look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.